0: Hi, this is Mia, and this is Tina, and
1: you're listening to No, a podcast about having a business at the intersection of design and health. Hey, yeah, no peoples, we're in season four, and we want to thank you for joining us on this wonderful journey. If you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to us. Regardless of which method you use to listen to your podcasts,
0: please, 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 please
1: leave us a review.
0: We'd love to hear from you, and we want to know what's working, what's not. You can also drop us a line at our website, yeahnopodcast.com. But if all that's too much, we get it. The smallest contribution is subscribing. So this is our last episode. Our last epi. Episode 40. We've had a great season. We've had lots of guests, which has been kind of an unusual departure for us. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. I like it. The person we're going to talk to today, Dr. Victor Mentori, is someone we've talked about many times on the podcast. We are huge fans. He is a endocrinologist at a Mayo Clinic and wrote an incredible book called Why We Revolt. And it's just inspirational because it's looking at what are the big problems in industrialized health care and how has it led us to no longer focus on care. And so he's asking for a patient revolution that's focused around careful and kind care, which we love. We'll be talking to Victor today about some of the elements of a revolution
1: and what he thinks are the components of a patient revolution and what it takes. Yeah. And it's nothing, I think, that we haven't talked about before, but he has just a really great kind of structure around it, which is nice.
0: Yeah. I wanted to read a passage. So this comes from the introduction to Why We Revolt. And it says, Simply noticing and acting on what is noticed makes patients more likely to receive care that makes intellectual, emotional, and practical sense to them. Care that responds to their needs and is consistent with their views of the world and their lives. This is care that recognizes and respects that patients need to devote their scarce time, energy, and attention to matters that compete in priority with the administrative and self-care tasks healthcare has delegated to patients. This is care that responds with competence, science, creativity, and humanity to advance each patient's situation without overwhelming patients or creating new ills. Hmm. And, you know, this theme of care has been ongoing for us. Um, I think we really believe in care, and all of our work revolves around understanding what care really means from a, a patient perspective.
1: It's these really simple notions of making people feel that you noticed them. We do that all the time, whether or not it's um, conscious or not. Right. And yet, in healthcare, you know doctors don't look at patients in the eyes or vice versa right uh, and patients can feel that they they know when a doctor is just not caring or maybe in an in another space you know their headspace may be somewhere else right so let's give them a call okay
2: Hi, how are you?
0: Victor Hi. here. Hi, Victor. How are you? Delighted. Great. Good. We are very, very excited to have you. We just wanted to let you know how influenced we've been by your work. We've been in healthcare for over a decade and, you know, have done work along the same lines.
2: Thank you. And it's... A, it's uh... When you do these sorts of things, um, to have kindred uh, spirits along the way that can join in and, and be together in the same idea, confirms that you're not completely crazy, which is very helpful.
0: <laughs> we felt the same way, reading your book. Could we start with a uh, just an introduction, if you can just say your name and how you describe yourself for our listeners?
2: Sure. So I'm uh, Victor Montori. I am a a clinician that takes care of people with uh, diabetes. I'm professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, and uh, co-founder and uh, chair of the board of the Patient Revolution. The Patient Revolution is a nonprofit organization that was started with the contribution of, of the Warburton family. They had been advocating for patient-centered care after Dr. Orberton retired. And he had been very good at promoting patient involvement in the clinical encounter and preparation and getting the most out of visits. And he had developed a number of techniques and approaches and his family wanted to honor him by making sure that other clinicians and other patients knew about these techniques. Over time, they bumped into the work that we were doing at the care unit at Mayo Clinic, which is a research group focused on advancing patient-centered uh, care. And then we uh, basically saw the, uh, the synergies and the opportunities of bringing our research group with uh, with the Warburton Foundation and, uh, and brought them together under this umbrella of the patient revolution, which is now a uh, an organization that is set on uh, transforming industrial healthcare to careful and kind care for all.
0: We love that idea of careful and kind care, it's so incredible. And we wanted to talk to you a little bit about this idea of a revolution in healthcare. It's a big idea, and we were just wondering, um, from your perspective, How do we build momentum, or how do we? um, Where's a good place to start for people who are interested in supporting this type of change in healthcare?
2: When one imagines changing healthcare, I think today what you're allowed to think is about a change in your own experience, perhaps being influential politically by supporting certain candidates that promote different ways of uh, offering access to healthcare, to patients, through the political process, but there's really no proposal to fundamentally change what uh, healthcare is and, and to turn it away from what makes it an industrial machine, which has been a very unfortunate development and, to, and turn it towards a more human response to suffering and to illness. And uh, so, it, so that's, that sounds like an impossible feat. It sounds mm-hmm. too big. And, um, and some people then tend to break it down and look for different smaller things they can change. Well, that's very practical, but we haven't figured out how to be practical. So our impractical approach is to think that we can change the whole thing. And so that uh, needs to start somewhere. And our proposal has been to start with a language with um, the choices that we make to describe what we see. And if we if we change the expectations that if you change the language to describe what healthcare is able to do, uh, that, that language would also shape and frame the thoughts that we have and that those thoughts will then shape and frame the actions that we can take. An example of this is our own choices of describing the healthcare industry as industrialised healthcare or as industrial healthcare. In that we try to convey the fact that, the, that healthcare, for instance, is not uh, currently a series of procedures, technologies, uh, administrative uh, elements, funding, designed and directed towards supporting patients and clinicians at the front line, uh, care for those patients that come in and, and need help it's indeed uh, shaped in the other, the other exact opposite direction. Patients and clinicians get together to create uh, on a good day, to co-create healthcare that is delivered to the patient and then shown to the payers to determine if it is of um, low enough cost and high enough uh, uh, quality, in other words, uh, of high enough value uh, for the payer to consider it uh, worth, uh, worthy of pay. And so all of a sudden you have a system that is um, using the work that patients and clinicians do uh, to justify itself to the payers rather than having the payers and the system mobilized to advance care right so this, this the fact that healthcare is exactly the, uh, oriented in the opposite direction instead of making care of the, the end of the system the purpose of the system making care of the means by which the system advances its own objectives uh, I think uh, makes it very clear that we're not dealing with, with a health care system, but we're really dealing with industrial health care. And so having that language, I think, is the first step. And in the book, uh, Why We Revolt, we have um, rehearsed other other ways of describing uh, health care, other language uh, to include um, describing patients as nothing more than a blur uh, when they come uh, in contact with the health care system, talking about cruelty, which results... Um, frequently from those interactions and, and that greed is a major contribution to the system as it is.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I remember I heard you speak. I think it might have been at Transform. You had this quote, which I'll never forget. I always tell people this over and over again about that. We talk about delivering care or providing care, but that care is already a verb. And so we should just mm-hmm. care. It's not transactional. Right, we have to really think about um, what does care mean, and and go back to you know the human, the human uh, framing of, of care.
2: Yeah, but it is it is it is transactional uh, right now, and so that's yeah. the thing is that uh, if we think of cares as something that is pulled out of a uh, pulled out of a box, um, well then you know almost for sure that that care is unlikely to be exactly the one that you need is it will be a care for people like you, but it will not be care for you. And one of the tricks that industrial healthcare must pull off is the notion of making patients and their clinicians interchangeable. So it really doesn't matter who your clinician is, you should be able to get the same care. And 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 some people think that's fine, but the the opposite is also true, which is well, not the opposite, but the, the also the other elements is also true that It almost doesn't matter who you are, um, uh, as long as you have the condition of interest, the care for people like you will be what you will get. And so this interchangeability of patients and clinicians supports efficiency in healthcare, but it doesn't really necessarily result in care.
0: Right. Our work has always been a little on the soft side in terms of, you know, we do a lot of research and and co-creation with patients and HCPs and um what we get back is you know how do we how do we help people so that they can can do the things that are important to them and they they're hard to me- measure and there's been such an emphasis on outcomes and metrics and reimbursement you know, reimbursement i know that there's a chapter in the book that kind of talks about that. And I'm, we're wondering if you can just talk a little bit about where does metrics come in? How can we, in this revolution, kind of reframe metrics so that they support the goals of revolutionizing
2: health mm-hmm. One of the most uh, important papers that I've contributed to was penned by my colleague Marlene Kuhneman. She's from the Netherlands, but uh, worked in our research unit. And she brought to our attention a, a show on uh, Dutch TV that involves co- uh, contestants answering uh, trivia uh, knowledge questions. And uh, they didn't know, need to know the answer. They just needed to say the answer, even if they didn't know that, the, that those words meant that they knew the answer. So the example, uh, I'm not going to do it justice to this, but the example was something like um, the question was, who's ne- Nelson Mandela? And the contestant has no idea. And so the, the the contestant has a minute to to get the answer. So the contestant starts going, oh Nelson Mandela, oh some Italian guy that uh, once uh, went on a trip to Africa, bing, um, that um, uh, and he was very good at. Um, Playing soccer, and uh, one time he won an, an award. Bing! <laughs> um, and um, and, and so, so they just had to say words has,
1: related to.
2: That's right. That's right. So you know, so if, he, if if the contestant got a few words that were connected with the right answer, we will get the prize. So it was a it was a knowledge contest, but uh, they called it a knowledge with a wink.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And uh, and she used that to, to write this paper. The paper is called Measurement with a Wink. And it refers to all the ways in which we measure quality in the healthcare system that have nothing to do with quality. They're just ways that are easy to measure, available for those who can measure in a way that cannot perhaps be gained. But they have a major limitation, which is that they don't have any meaning. Healthcare systems become very, very good at this uh, aim of measurement with a Wink and they can, they can ace the measurement, uh, even if they don't care about uh, care. And so an example that I saw with my own eyes was when I was uh, in the project, I went to a, a very good clinic and I sat in the waiting room as I was expecting to visit with one of the clinicians in that clinic. I was sat in the waiting room and I looked at one of the walls and there was a sign on the wall and the sign said this clinic has 75% of his, uh, patients with diabetes taking cholesterol medicine. Help us get to 100%. Mm-hmm. And I can completely understand how, what they were thinking of, you know, involve your patients in, in quality and so forth. But they were asking the patients to help the clinic.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The clinic is there to help the patient. Yeah. Right, it's right. it's you know, comp- but they were trying to ace the ace the test. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that is more fraudulent, uh, it was in another clinic. The clinician walked into the room to see this patient, and and the clinician walked in with a prescription for the cholesterol medicine already printed out. And at the end of the conversation, and it's just a matter of closing the visit, the clinician hands on hands the prescription to the patient. He says, oh by the way, you should take this medication for your cholesterol. And the patient looks at it and says, oh, but this is a statin and I don't like to take statins because I heard they're bad for you and so forth. The clinician interrupts the patient and says, look, this is what you have to do. If you don't want to do it, I'm fine with that. But, I, but here's the prescription. If you change your mind, go ahead and fill it and take it. And so that was pretty awkward. You know, what, Why would somebody do that? Turns out the quality metric is to prescribe statins to the patient. Mm. And so they did. They wrote the prescription. They gave it, The patient didn't take it. Right. Patient non-compliant is not my problem. Right. right. So they check, measurement the box. With a, they check the box, right? And there's a whole cottage industry, both within and outside healthcare organizations, that are uh, spending a, a lot of resources in making sure that these tests are aced. And uh, and the question is, are patients better off? And I suspect that it's a mixed bag. That in some cases the quality measures are process measures that reflect uh, uh, something that is universally accepted as good, or for the patients in in which uh, they're targeted, it's considered a very good thing. Um, And others that are like this, you know, that are simply easy to do. Somebody thought would be a good idea, but in doing them they force a form of care for people like you not for you and reduce the opportunity to care for people or assume that care is a process that is purely technical that if we just did the right answer for people like this on average we'll get good outcomes Mm. but on average is not how we care
0: yeah that's right right so what can people do to further this revolution? Do you have advice for somebody who really wants to um, do this type of change? What can we do?
2: Yeah, um, I think that the first, uh, the first step, the step that is within all of us is to choose our language carefully in the way that uh, in every conversation, we can express our commitment to something different than what we have here in front of us. I think to the extent that we buy into the language of the system as is, um, that we are contributing to its, um, to its persistence and to its goals. And I think there's an opportunity to uh, reject the system by uh, describing in ways that will prompt in our listeners um, a, um, a different feel, a different, uh, a different reaction, a different thinking about it. This sounds very weak, but I think it's absolutely essential that we get the right language to describe what's going on. Then the next step is, of course, uh, to turn that uh, that language into into thinking and action that would change the system. At the local level, we are exploring uh, how might we create local chapters that will focus on how the healthcare industry uh, or how industrial healthcare manifests and um, there's often opportunities locally to participate in hospital boards, patient and family councils, uh, work together with uh, health professionals in uh, in projects and programs but not just simply participate to rubber stamp or to belong, you know, to be considered as one of the people that can that is part now of the healthcare industry. We've observed uh, uh, that uh, many people, as they join uh, these opportunities, try very hard to be part of that group, to, mm-hmm. to learn their language and, 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 and respond to their cues. And so we think we need to train uh, or participate in the training of community members, both professionals, uh, both health professionals and, and lay folk, uh, so that when they participate in this in these uh, in, in opportunities they can productively contribute to those opportunities by shaping them so that they can truly care for uh, patients and, and and their loved ones we don't know exactly how that will work but that's one of the what one of the next steps i think that is possible yes. and then because healthcare is nothing perhaps nothing more than a reflection of of our society at large I think we all have to make the conscious decision that our passivity and our silence in relation to the political process has consequences. And uh, there are multiple consequences. But one of the consequences that it has is the advancement of people who are not passive and quiet. And those are uh, folks that are out to gain economically and otherwise from our passivity. And I think in part because of that, we have, a, we have industrial healthcare. And I think uh, being active in the political process, locally or nationally, whatever it is within our possibilities, within our health to do, it becomes really important to turn uh, industrial healthcare into care for and kind care for all.
0: Amazing.
1: That's a great conclusion. <laughs> Well, thank you, Victor, so much again for being a part of our podcast. We really loved chatting with you. We love hearing kind of all of the things that you're working towards. And really, as Mia was saying, just feel very kind of kindred spirits in this. And we hope we are doing our part to to also get this kind of this revolution, be a part of this revolution because we strongly believe in it. Yeah.
2: Well, it's uh, wonderful to have to, to, to be on the same boat. I hope we get to good port.
0: Yeah. Yes, absolutely.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes,
0: thank you for your time. Okay, bye bye.
1: What a great last conversation for the Yeah, season.
0: a really great closure and a vision for healthcare. I think that everybody should read Why We Revolt inspiring to to think that we could take a stance, and even in changing language, which I highly agree with, that we can make a difference.
1: Yeah, I I want to talk a little bit about some of the closing remarks that he had, and I know we didn't really get, into, get to get into asking some questions about it, but it's interesting around the language part because I do think that there's a proclivity that when we get around certain people we tend to want to use their language because we feel that that's a way to connect with them or to get them to listen to us. That's right. When we were at Johnson & Johnson, I remember being in a room full of corporate people, people who had MBAs and, you know, had been in marketing, you know, for years and years and years. And I remember just trying to get my points across about, human-centered research and human-centered design and all these kinds of things. And I remember while I was talking in the middle of it thinking, these people don't understand anything that I'm saying. Right. And I found myself- And do they take you seriously? Right. And I found myself trying to use the words that they use just to get them to understand better. Yeah. And that's what Victor's saying not to do, right. which is really hard because I, I think there's a tendency for doctors to shut patients out when patients say certain things. That's right. Instead of really thinking of changing the language, which is to say, oh, the patients that I'm seeing speak like this, maybe I should speak the way that they do, yeah. you know? And it's a real huge mind shift It is to let the patient take the lead rather than the clinician. I
0: think like what you were saying about wanting to have a shared language with the people that you're working with so that you can understand each other but it's so one way like why did we have to adopt corporate health speak Yeah. Um, and you know this idea of play or care or concern or love or Connection. That's really kind of words that people can, as human beings, can relate to, especially thinking about health. But they're yeah. not words that are used in healthcare very often. Can we make a list? Let's just go back and forth of all the words, the language in healthcare that we've adopted that are not n- normal words for us to say. Okay. Like I would say leverage. Hmm. How about outcomes? Deliver practitioner persistence
1: compliance
0: I even think like metrics is not in my normal vocabulary mm-hmm. but I use it at work all the time
1: yeah I think so too
0: efficiencies
1: yeah the plural of efficiency <laughs> That's a good one well and I also think that I mean if you ask most 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 <laughs> mosk. I'm using different words I right change yeah. <laughs> Changing the language I think if you, if you ask most people, they would say that they're not their regular personality when they go into a doctor's appointment. I know I'm not. I ask a lot of questions, which I, I do in my normal day-to-day. But I'm ask not a lot of questions. I'm not jokey. I mean, I grew up Korean-American with immigrant parents where their whole thing was all about acclimation, right? So <laughs> they were just like, just good at that. to be American. <laughs> And I was like, I am American. I was born here. But, you know, I mean, that was their thing is that they were just like, just blend in. Yeah. Just do what everybody else does. Yeah. This is like my dad when he was like, you know, you should really drink coffee. <laughs>
0: He's like, he said that to you? Yeah.
1: Oh, I didn't tell you that. No. After college, I was still not drinking. I mean, I still don't drink coffee, but, you know, he goes, you know, you should really start drinking coffee. <laughs> And I was no, like, "That's what regular why? people
0: do. Americans do that." Yeah, no, he said, "He said,
1: you know, business. Everybody, they say, let's go get coffee. Let's go. <laughs> what are you gonna do?" <laughs> well, your dad is like, so cute. I would just go. Like, oh I, don't I, like I don't understand. What are you gonna drink? Coffee? Like, it has to be coffee, you know? And so, I mean, so that was my parents. They were yeah. just like, just acclimate. Right. And so, when I go into or relate, I, yeah. Yeah, I go into a doctor's office and, you know, it's set up in a way that doesn't make me want to feel like I'm jokey. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I think that that's you try to match the environment you're in. And the problem is is that doctors should be matching the environment yeah. of the patients, right. not the other way around.
0: Right. right. I think this is something that one medical has done really well. The last time I got my blood drawn, I talked to the phlebotomist and asked her a lot of questions about mm. how she got her job and you know what she how she felt about working there because she was so good. And so she said, oh yeah, it's like a six month hiring process. And she's like, they really make sure that you're the right person and that you're going to show up and be that person when you're here. You can feel it there. The p- people talk to you like you're having a conversation with a friend. It's really about trust building more than it is about being an authority. Yeah. We just wanted to say thanks to all of our guests and the season this year. Jen Hornja from Savvy Co-op. Tuli Matomaki from Alto University in Finland. Andre Blackman from Onboard Health. Christian Madsberg from Red Associates. Zev Neuwirth, who wrote Reframing Healthcare. Victor Montori from The Patient Revolution. We appreciate everyone for taking the time
1: to come on and talk about healthcare and be great, passionate leaders. Visionary,
0: visionary leaders, yeah. And show us some new dimensions around healthcare. I think we really kind of expanded the zone in which we've looked at healthcare and we broadened that this, this season. And we hope that you've enjoyed listening. So if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, subscribe to Yano yeah, Podcast. We can be found on the web at yanopodcast.com.
1: And we want to thank Figure Eight Studios for hosting us this season. It's been fantastic as always. We love coming here. Thank you Michael P. Coleman and thanks to Tori Flack our producer and editor who's also been great this season and all of the team at Yano. It really does take a village to create and build this podcast for you all.
0: Yep, And thanks to Chess Smith for a new round of Yano music and we will talk to you next season. Season 5. Stay tuned.
1: Bye. We will be talking to Victor today about some of the elephant elephants. <sighs>